Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. This week, we're re-promoting one of my favorite episodes from 2020, in case you missed it in the midst of all of last year's excitement. It's a super charming chat between David Bazan, who's best known as the frontman of Pedro the Lion, but also released records under his own name and under the name Headphones and lots of other great stuff, and Joe Para, the creator and star of the Adult Swim show Joe Para Talks With You. I was reminded of this episode upon hearing that a third season of Joe's charming, low-key TV show would be returning sometime this fall. There's no date set yet, but sometime soon. I can't wait for more episodes, and based on this conversation, I'm betting that Dave Bazan can't either. He's a huge fan. They talk about the joys of creating, about finding your authentic self on stage, and how live performers must sometimes dominate their audiences. Enjoy. Uh, this is uh, Joe Para and Dave Bazan <laughs> uh, talking. Can I ask some some basic uh, biographical questions? Yeah, definitely. So you you grew up in in Buffalo, yeah? Yep. Yep. And are you in your thirties? I uh, are you in your twenties. I like to keep it. Uh, I, I I got a thing on my website where people are allowed to guess. So I, I kind of oh, don't. You, gotta, you, you can't. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people have things at stake here. I, I don't want <laughs> to give anybody an advantage. Yeah. Do you find living in New York City, what what drove you to, to do that? I, I guess what comedy, that's kind of like the center of where comedy happens. Yeah, I was doing stand-up in college, and I just realized that if I... I, I would go home and do it in, in Buffalo during the summer sometimes. But if I wanted to make a career out of it, which I kind of was, you know, uh, eager and naive enough to try and do when I graduated, so cool. I I just I, I realized I couldn't do it in Buffalo. So I uh, moved to New York after saving up some money. And then, yeah, so I've been doing it here ever since. And if you want to perform live stand-up comedy, that's the place where you can get up the most and, and get good as much as possible just because there's the most stage time. So it kind of was nice in that it made my decision easy. Yeah. But right now, during the quarantine, I'm kind of glad I'm not living with uh, two roommates in uh, a small apartment uh, anymore. Yeah. I've, I've, yeah, I was able, I got a little patio and I took... We had leftover bean seeds from the show, so I actually <laughs> soaked them overnight and, and planted some outside. So. Nice. You got a little box? Uh-huh. Yeah, all kinds. I planted uh, snow-capped beans and uh, some, oh, I forget the name. But they'll, I don't know. We'll see what happens. It might be a little cold still, but it's all right. It, it, it is part of the rhythm of the... The Earth, anyways. Uh, I don't know about the universe, but the yeah. rhythm of the Earth that is is a part of what your show kind of draws people's attention to. I feel like, and as a backdrop to season two, um, with everything that goes on in there, it's it's really lovely, you know, um, the the garden thing. And so, did, is that something that you grew up with, with gardening? 
Yeah, my my parents had a nice garden, and um, my my grandparents had uh, pots of uh, stuff on their back porch. I remember my grandmother would go out and pick basil to put in dinner. Um, my grandfather also did uh, bean uh, teepees and arches in real life, mm-hmm. and they never worked. But I don't know. It really is. Um, although I sound corny, but when you know, in your garden, when you get your first. Uh, pepper or vegetable comes up, it's really a great feeling. And we tried to do a little bit of that in the show. And I kind of wish I could be doing, like having a garden, like um, it gets kind of channeled into the show a little bit. A lot of guys I went to college with and and women too became music teachers. And it's just kind of like exploring what my life would be like if I was a music teacher and mm-hmm. instead of a comedian and it's so a, a way to follow that kind of alternate path so when I'm kind of stuck in New York sometimes and I fantasizing about having a garden or, mm-hmm. or or doing those types of activities it kind of gets funneled into the the show and I'm kind of able to in a weird way live both of those at the same time why the UP? Um, for the show, it, I, I see the similarities with with Buffalo culturally. Is it, what things led you to make it about Marquette? There's a lot that they have in common, like the beer, the hockey. Mm-hmm. They get a lot more snow, but there's a long winter. Mm-hmm. It started when we were making the Christmas special. We were looking for a place to. It's a major state that's a producer of Christmas trees mm-hmm. and also that's likely to get snow in October. Oh, yeah. Um, so the UP was the, the perfect spot for both of those. And then we visited or we, we shot there. And then I just kept on going to Marquette and reading about it. And there's so much nature that surrounds this uh, city right at the foot of this giant cold lake. And I thought it was a nice kind of like the perfect place for to set the show and um the main character i thought his personality uh mirrored a little bit of the setting and the totally yeah i don't i don't want to sound like a cornball but i was like looking out at lake superior one winter in feb i think it was february i went there with marty the director and i just you know thought that um yeah this is kind of got to be the the spot and I've just enjoyed going back and continuing to to be there I don't know I like going there in the show kind of as a as a way to get back there that's cool and, you know adult pays on adult swims the dime yeah totally and um I knew a lot about it but it was also a place where I can kind of set my imagination to fill in details in a way that I couldn't with Buffalo because I just had too much experience yeah, there. Yeah, I think that that's important in helping, keeping me excited and, and writing about it and setting the show there. <laughs> There's a book about writing poetry called The Triggering Town that um, huh. is by this guy, I think is Richard Hugo, that a friend gave to me. And they talk about anything can be this, but a town is a really great magnet to, to collect ideas around. And it's it's cool that that's, that 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 worked that way. I, it makes so much sense yeah. knowing that you're from Buffalo and having spent time in in Buffalo on tour, and then 
I, I have pals from the UP, I guess. Um, yeah. It's exotic. Uh, it's an exotic destination <laughs> in, in the United States in a way, you know. Um, it's it's remote and, yeah, it's beautiful. And, uh, yeah, so it's I, I, I'm glad to know how that worked a little more. Um, one of the things I like about your TV show, which I really, really deeply enjoy, is that it seems to be reminders to slow down and there's a lot of rituals that you kind of make reference to that are simple and that you really savor these kind of simple routines and rituals that I think it's easy for life to get moving so fast that you don't realize what an important and uplifting thing grocery shopping is or going for a drive. I don't know. I guess I got it from growing up in Buffalo. There's just, my family would do a lot of kind of seasonal things and they, my mom would decorate the house for each holiday, like even St. Patrick's Day. And at times I thought it was kind of, you know, a lot. And she had to <laughs> take these decorations down and then store them. But, uh, yeah, uh, yeah I, I don't know. There was something about that. And like my grandfather, he would come over for St. Patrick's Day dinner and he would have a, a whatever green hat he purchased that year at a garage sale and yeah. set aside. And it's just kind of, it's kind of making your own rhythm and something to look forward to in, in a really simple way. And I don't know, a lot of the show is about that, having to write the show and write stand-up, it's, you know, there's a lot of idiosyncrasies involved with writing and getting a sure. daily routine set up. I write best when I have my my phone off and I walk in the morning for 30 minutes or so. Oh, yeah. I think it's, it's extremely important to me is when I'm writing to, to do those things properly in almost kind of a, a nuts kind of way. That's amazing. Do you try to have that be like a daily ritual or just whenever you're trying to write? It's usually when I'm trying to write that I need to mm -hmm. have some certain things in order. But uh, I don't know. I wasn't feeling well the first few weeks of quarantine and like I couldn't uh, be productive. But then I kind of started to work on those, instituting those things again. Yeah. And it makes such a huge difference. Uh, I don't know. Last season, I writing, I did like 10 miles in a day, but it's just kind of about creating that even tempo for your brain to think in. And Is it sort of you're making space for yourself, so you turn your phone off and go for a walk and then come back, and then it's easier to find the space to write? Am I understanding that, yeah. that pattern? Sometimes. I'm, sometimes, though, also, my phone is really great to have on a walk because I don't uh, like I'll pull open the notes thing and it's yes. got the talk to text. So I'll yes. walk for an hour and come back with um, the notes that are all misspelled and, you know, you got to correct everything. But <laughs> it's like... But it I, captures I it. I think so. And sometimes it's better than sitting down and writing with a, a pen and paper for me. I'm a... Um an observer or a practitioner of the right drunk edit sober kind of <laughs> way of doing things, which is just to say there needs to be an irresponsible 
phase at the beginning where your editor's not allowed and that you're basically drunk or free yeah. or whatever. Um, and I feel like walking, you know, I, that to me really is a one way that I can do the right drunk part. Um, and I don't know if it's, it, do you, you feel free just kind of whatever comes to your head, you put down and you're not judging yourself in that phase is, is another way that I think of right, right drunk, like no judgment. Yeah, it's fun. And it's, I don't have, I'm thinking, oh, thinking about getting like a standing desk, but it's just so much easier when your body's moving to, to not edit yourself and just kind of yeah. keep on using the momentum to, you know, generate ideas or just continue a line. Yeah, yes, and instead of like backtracking, even with yourself, it's a good mantra, you know. That's a great idea, Dave. What, like, <laughs> what about this? You know, and this, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. And this. Yeah, I kind of feel like it's the closest as a comedian that I'll come to like jamming or vamping uh, yeah. with the, the band because, you know, you kind of got to just kind of, even if you're saying, come on, Dave, or come on, Joe, it's like mm -hmm. you kind of are continuing output and you have to say something or think of something. I don't know. I've been, I've, I'm always looking for things, media or books or songs or, um, or anything that I can fill my head with that helps me to remember, uh, yeah. to slow down and to, that I love the, these quiet little rituals that aren't flashy and don't really hit my dopamine button super hard, <laughs> you know, like in the short term, but over time, the level of kind of like baseline dopamine does does tend to rise, um, and so yeah, I just I appreciate the the, the show. Um, it's okay. it's quite. I mean, it's just you've you've made and your your pals have made a, such a beautiful and and tender thing. No, I appreciate that it carries through. We've all been performing for a while, but you know, most of us have never been in a writer's room before, yeah. and. We, I still don't have like a, a formula down for it, but it's just, mm -hmm. I think, yeah, it's kind of, we, we kind of go into a panic every season trying to figure yeah. it out. And, um, but I just think what we, we try and do is we just care as much as possible about the show. And like, we're not the, the smartest uh, TV writers out there or anything, or the, we don't know how to do it properly, but, I don't know. We just care about every every little bit, and uh, one of the my co-star Joe Firestone's mm -hmm. uh, dad appeared in the show. He's a grocery store guy who tried uh, in this. Oh, rad! Yeah, in the second season, then Connor's dad and his brothers. He plays Mike Melsky in the show. They appeared yeah. in the show, and yeah, when it started, it was my actual grandmother playing herself in the Christmas special that we made, and it's just kind of. Um, I don't know. Yeah, we were willing to put our family into it and really, I guess, put everything that we, we can into it. And I, th I I hope that it carries through. But, you know, that's the only thing that we know how to do um, that I think uh, makes it a little special. I, I really think so, too. And just, just how free you guys are, it would seem to just put in all of the little pieces that are, are meaningful to you and... I feel like when you don't know what you're doing, 
it's easier to be more sophisticated because you just wind up saying yes to so many other things because you don't know that there are guidelines that you have to push past or, you know, whatever, or expectations. And uh, I just, I love that that all came together for all of you guys. And I hope that you, even though now it's out and you have experience bringing it to market and it seems like you guys would have a shot at just staying in the zone, you know, that you worked in the first couple of times and not, it's hard to do that. I feel like it's hard to stay sort of soft and to stay unaware, which I think is good to be unaware. Yeah. It made me think of like how in the first season we wanted to, to shoot it during the winter and mm-hmm. do a lot of, uh, scenes was was snow on the ground and also at, at nighttime because of those that combination is you know just in my imagination is the the best thing uh yeah. but then when we'd have to do an overnight and then go shoot outside in the milwaukee and michigan winter it's uh mm-hmm. it makes me wonder how much more of that i'll write but i hope uh, right i hope i don't think about it t- too much because I don't know, but yeah, it's uh, not knowing that put me and the whole crew out in the snow at uh, midnight, and I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I feel bad. Now I can't, at least, I guess, right, if I do it again, I can't pretend that I didn't know better to the crew. (laughs) Right. They'll they'll definitely know. (laughs) Well, yeah, that can be baked into the pitch, like, okay, guys, so... That is a tricky um, kind of intersection where the more that you do something, the you do get better at the craft of it because to to work efficiently or to to use your resources well, it really does require one to get better at the use and the allocation of those resources, and with that can come awarenesses that would limit your creativity too. You know, along along with that and to get more and more savvy about one's craft and to get less and less savvy about how it's landing in the world (laughs) is kind of a tough trick to pull off. But one that I, I just look back on my own work and the very first record that I made before I, I had ever really put something out in the world. There's so much more sophisticated than anything I've been able to do since then because after that I was aware of how mean everybody was and how scrutinized everything was going to be. And there was a kind of rhino skin that got put on me against my will just from knowing, just like the tree of knowledge of good and evil kind of deal. Like I just, just from stepping into the market, I began to understand what was waiting for me at the end of each creative process and I, it it was it changed me and I, I spend a lot of time now realizing I want to go back to that place where I just really don't care what happens when it goes to market yeah I was reading about some of your albums and your new album and I was mm-hmm. like holy crap I'm so well it's it's nice that people write about music in the in the depth that they do. I don't mm-hmm. think they do it with comedy, but I was like, right. I can't. I mean, especially since your music is so personal, it's almost like you're being psychoanalyzed in every single music review. It's yeah, a, that's a lot.
Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. When I watch your guys' show, I... I don't know. There's so much vulnerability in it. I mean, just even in the in the character, which I guess I'm kind of curious about. When did your kind of character develop and how... Cl- I mean, it, it seems like it flows r- directly from just who you are. Uh, I've heard Chappelle say that, like, the only time that he's himself is when he's on stage and the rest of his life is just the bullshit that he has to do to have a space to be himself. And I wonder if the stand-up and and comedy was like permission to be yourself in a way that was hard to pull off before or... It's tough. I kind of agree with uh, Chappelle. I don't know. There's no other feeling than being on stage and I try and perform that way in the show, but it's um hard to get in that same kind of zone. I don't know. Would you do you agree with that for him as a performer? Oh, uh, with Chappelle, yeah. It it made me realize something about myself, I guess. And so there are controversies with the recent specials, and and I understand what that is. Um, but sure. I do think that it it kind of even makes it more clear that that's a space where he is used to being free and being himself, and he's so gifted at delivering comedy. He can take any any story, anything, and present it in a way that's very compelling and funny. Right. And so I do recognize a freedom. And if maybe what he's saying is that's one of the few places that he has earned the right to be himself, and it just so happens that it's in that setting where you're getting this very electric feedback from people. Yeah, that I, I feel that. Um, to, uh, there's this Gary Shandling, Tom Petty uh, video on YouTube where the two of them are hanging really? out for like 20 minutes. Yeah, it's so good. They're talking for a while and kind of getting past the early stages of like, 
getting settled in the conversation and getting moving from the driveway into the studio of Tom's like home studio. Yeah. And then there's a beat and and Gary says, "You know, I I really feel good." Uh and do you feel good kind of like to Tom? Tom's like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Yeah, I feel really feel really feel good." And Tom says, "It, it only takes three cameras." <laughs> you know, for us to feel good. <laughs> When I've seen a whale in in the in the wild, I started sobbing because there's just a freedom. They just do whatever they're just doing their thing, and it seems like that there's some temperaments who the only way to find that is to be on stage. And there's a sense in which people who find themselves in that spot, I kind of am realizing that that's how I work, and it's kind of shameful feeling because I don't want to be that way but at the same time it seems true and I can see it in a in a Chappelle kind of character and in a lot of ways I think that for me I, I was needing to process so much grief in my life for various reasons that yeah. music was the only place that I was allowed to do that because there was a tradition of sad songs mm-hmm. um, and so within that tradition I had permission to express the the, the grief that I was trying to process. And so for me, yeah, the place where I'm most truly myself is in song and the place where I get the biggest uh, affirmation of that and the, the biggest high that is available to me in, in life is on stage, um, <laughs> totally. And that's an earned high that is really unique you know you, not everybody can have that and when you do you do want it again <laughs> it's it's quite intoxicating yeah that all f- feels really familiar i definitely uh, agree with the shame of that i don't know it's something i'm kind of trying to balance out too because um just the idea of being a, a comedian for a living is a little bit uh i don't know i come from a a family where people work really hard and it's not, you know, just the idea of being able to make a living doing it is a little nuts. But it feels immodest somehow to be a star, a relative star for your, your job or, you know. Yeah. I'm trying to get rid of that shame. When I do like an hour long set, sometimes uh, like the first 30 minutes will be doing material and then I'll, do some crowd work and if it's going well you know I can expand it and keep talking with the audience and extending yeah. the show and the same kind of like when you get a writing wave where you you know the first 30 minutes are painful or you know you're 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 thinking about it but then once it kind of comes and it's so much easier I think on stage to get that free flow between yeah. what you want to get out. I don't know when it feels like you get that more direct connection from your, your, your head to your mouth and then to the audience. And maybe it's just being present completely in the way that I have difficulty other times. But like, yeah, when you get that, totally. I don't know. I, that's why I feel like maybe the shame isn't the worst thing. Cause it's, I guess if it's you being your most, a direct self and opening up in that way and kind of getting that flow going. It's a, I think that's a, a good thing is being able to, to share that. 
I totally agree. It took a number of years of doing stand-up to, you know, experience that, not just telling jokes, but then kind of going off, connecting with the audience, and then finding like a new, a new thing with them. That was when I learned like how far you have to go to master the art form. Mm-hmm. And like how I'm just, I'm still like so early on in this whole thing. And like Dave Chappelle, uh, you know, he'll do sets that are hours long, which is kind of ridiculous. But once he can hit that stride, it's like that's, you know. He has everybody. That's what the form is about. And it's very it, cool. It, it reminds me of an experience I had playing a show in San Francisco. I do a Q&A in the middle just to basically do some crowd work, even though it's not a comedy show. <laughs> just try to, to get people involved and get their hands on the wheel of the energy just a little bit. And Part of that is I, I've felt that shame in a, in a way that has required, I, I need permission from people to do things. <laughs> Even if I'm on stage and they've paid money to come see me <laughs> perform, I still feel like if I get on a roll that I'm being overindulgent and somehow I'll miss a cue that I'm I'm going too far. And so I, I had this way of constantly, the Q&A came from just needing to be able to have my finger on the pulse when I was doing banter so that I just wasn't a, a, jack, a jack off up there. Um, at the San Francisco show, I was doing a Q&A, and this is you know, a decade and a half into doing that, that thing, and I had said something that was true but a little harsh, and I kind of backtracked a little bit, and a woman's voice came out of the, the audience. In, in this case, it's a dark rock club, you know? Yeah. And she said, you're the Dom. And I said, wait. Can you say that again? And she said, you're the Dom. (laughs) And I understood like, oh, it's my responsibility. Like I, there's a, there's a, (laughs) there's power. There's a vacuum of power at the center of this thing that if I don't fill it all the way, people are in danger of at least having a bad time or in danger of whatever energy might come from some other dickhead in the audience taking control of that energy. Yes. Um, it was permission. It was like, we, you know, this is a trust relationship and for everybody to be happy and safe, you have to occupy that Dom position all the way. And because you care about us and our experience, not because you need to be in charge, but because you're a custodian of the energy. Yes. And that helped me a lot to begin the journey to you know, I tried to own the time on stage as much as I could, given the the permission issues that I had. But just recently, I threw that woman yelling that at the show. It, it began a process of me undoing that shame and really being a better performer because I take more responsibility with less shame. The responsible dom, you know. Yeah. You got to be the, the Dom DeLuise of the show. <laughs> the Dom DeLuise. You're the DeLuise. <laughs> uh, um, I watched your Buffalo Bills joke and then tried to find as much other stand-up on YouTube as I could. I had seen both seasons of the show, but I hadn't gone deeper and listened to podcasts or, or stand-up. 
And I noticed in the stand-up, there was some, uh, I really, I grew up loving Bob Newhart. My parents watched the Bob Newhart show and then we watched Newhart and then found (laughs) bits of Bob Newhart stand-up. And there's something, there's a similar kind of cadence and something that reminded me of, of Bob Newhart and and yours and, and, and other comics like him. Is that anything that you spent time with or who were the people that really turned you on? Yeah, that's, that's a really nice for you to say. Most of the audiences I perform for don't notice a connection with Bob Newhart, but uh, sometimes like a little bit older audience will say that. And I really appreciate it. I used to have a, a joke about um, uh, feeling guilty about not being back in, in Buffalo because my that's how the breakfast crew bit started. My dad has a friend who has a breakfast crew and he's really jealous about it. So I said, and I, I you know, the best breakfast crew is uh, your full grown sons, but I'm denying him that because <laughs> I have to, I'm here in uh, New York trying to be Bob Newhart for a new generation. Uh, <laughs> but so. I, I love it. Yeah. Was there a nod? There's a, there's a similar energy to the Mr. Rogers show as well. I, I feel, is that something that came up for you guys? Um, Definitely. I think anytime you have kind of a direct-to-camera in somebody's home, it's uh, there. And I, when I did the early animation, Joe Parra Talks You to Sleep, it was definitely yeah. there. But it's um, one of the things that we thought about at the beginning. But it's been um, different stuff lately, and I think, I think we have less in common with it. I definitely just kind of the the gentle tone and like when he would cut to, he went to see the saxophone be made one time. Maybe I'm confusing yeah. with Sesame Street, but there's definitely ties like that. But I don't want to be offering Fred Rogers type guidance because I'm definitely not that. Christopher Guest was kind of like a, a guide post for me and like something that kind of really changed my mind about comedy and Christopher guess uh, movies the the mostly improv movies that that he's made or other other yep. aspects yeah those government and the best in show and yeah so yeah. it's kind of the form but also the way he can just walk into a scene and be so funny and um <laughs> yeah. I don't know it's just like him or um there's a lot of people I like. Uh, I think Zach Galifianakis' Comedy Central yeah. uh, presents when he did the ballet at the end of the special. Uh, but uh, like him, uh, I don't know. Like those, the guy like Zach Galifianakis or Christopher Guest, when they can just walk in and be so funny in anything and just have anything that they say be funny is such a an impressive thing. I think it's kind of like that. Yeah. Just like the funny kind of flows through them in a way that, you know, just every movement and expression and it's just so dense. And uh, those two guys were uh, people I, I really looked up to. I think that that does come through in the show. In, a, in the Jesse Thorne interview that I listened to, you were talking about keeping awkward little beats and like body movements or things in the show or like when maybe that what you're referencing is when Joe Firestone ran into the door. (laughs) Um, And those, those are 
just as a watcher of filmed narrative stuff that those are my favorite things kind of it, what it reminds me of is in the big Lebowski whenever um well, the cowboy guy I'm blanking on his name but he, <laughs> he he's talking to the dude and he leaves and he starts to go to the right and then yeah. he it, it's like he he got the wrong direction and then he went to the left instead and <laughs> Um, you know, it's a major motion picture that costs a lot of money per <laughs> per minute of film. Yeah. And th- there's just things where you're looking for an indication that they did this on purpose or at least, I don't know, It's those are so delightful. And there's so, ma- so many layers on which that's happening throughout the show, just even in the script where... You know, you throw in Kaiser Sose in the in, in the line of questions, and it's yeah. and it's it's random, but it's not random for the somehow the people viewing. It's just everybody's tracking, and you. It's such a it's such a pleasure to follow along. And I guess I'm I, I'm curious is is everybody doing? Everybody must be on the same page there. That everybody's just lovingly trying to put. Because you guys are all writing and all working on... Yeah. That's the thing I can't get over is the show's voice is so consistent with so many different people writing episodes. is wonderful. Yeah. Well, this, uh, do a rewrite at the end to kind of even everything out and then and yeah. edit. We, we, we make sure the tone is right. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I should say that the, like, um, the Kaiser Soze is intentional. We just... In our own subtle way, we try and figure out a moment where we can pull a a, a, a big joke or a, <laughs> a a goof in there. I just know that like I'm not the most uh, coordinated, and I know we all know kind of like what each other can do physically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like I know that Joe Firestone is only a little over five feet. So one of I had a scene in mind where she gets in and out of a giant truck, and I had that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and I just had that idea of that in my head since like before we even got into the writing room, and I just want to see her get in and out of a big truck over and over again. Yeah. And maybe a little uh, as we did more takes, she kind of was goofier on purpose. Mm-hmm. She was very sincere at, the, at first about how she was trying to step in and out of a giant truck. And, like, that's the best thing to me. I was kind of mean to make my friend do that, but she wasn't upset with me about that. No. No, it's, I, I, I think that what I'm hearing you say is you, you're saying you know your body moves in a certain way and you are, are willing to um, use what in the past you might have. I'm projecting here and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but in the past as a person in high school, you might have tried to move less that way. But now it's like I, there's a space in which it benefits the whole thing for me to just be myself in a warts and all way that is, it's not an exploitation of those things, but it's an acceptance of those things because it's, you can see their value in this context. Yeah. A lot of it is like onset. I'm not clever enough to write every thing, but like on set, we've got a really good uh, prop guy named uh, Bob. And like 
uh, when I say have to like carry a big uh, cooler a hill, it was uh, in one scene. It was kind of half filled with water, and he said, "Let me empty it out for you." And um, we decided though to just keep it full and as heavy as possible because <laughs> that's it's funnier. Or if carrying too much stuff is and or more stuff than I can balance is funny. And if I drop it in the take, you know, it happens. But it, we don't plan on it but just i don't know giving somebody too much stuff to carry or you know just a a cup of water that's a little bit too full i don't know it's a tension you're (laughs) keeping tension all the time it's so great right yeah so other shows might be like why don't we trim those pants so that they fit or that they don't make a noise when you walk or uh, that's a bad example but stuff like that we'll just say thanks (laughs) i was about to say that's a great example because there it's those things where you're walking down a hallway in a hotel and your pants are going like (laughs) like your eighth grade uh you know english teacher's pantyhose you did and you remembered that and there's there are these little I don't know how what the percentage is, but a, a percentage of people, and I'm in that percentage, when I hear my shoe squeak because my heel's rubbing in it, I feel embarrassed about it. <laughs> and I want to make it stop. And it's it's lovely that to to sort of celebrate all those things and to have that be a kind of consistent texture of a TV show is great. The stage that you set with the tone of everything just leaves so much room for subtle tenderness just throughout and um and the joy that is found like in the the who episode is it's such a um a bolt you know it's um oh i i, I had a question about that too the in that in the show it sort of implies being kind of sheltered somehow it is that something that like but because you didn't you hadn't heard that song yeah (laughs) that resonates with me because i grew up religious in a way that i wasn't allowed to listen to what they called secular music (laughs) and so i didn't hear bob o'reilly till i had put out a record what you know yeah until i was like 20 the first time I picture hearing it was in my booking agent's apartment in Ann Arbor, Michigan in like 1999 when I was 22. Holy cow. So you put out a whole record and you hadn't even listened to Who's Next yet? Yeah, no, I hadn't heard. <laughs> so on a, tr- on a tour in 2000, I... Um, I, me and that same person, my friend Trey, were driving back from, I've, I can't remember what we were driving cross country for, but we were listening to classic rock radio and yeah. I said, who's this? <laughs> and he was like, wait, you don't know who this is? And I was like, no, I'm asking who is this? And he was like, it's Van Halen. <laughs> and I just was like, that's cool. I n- I've never heard that song before. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been in a rock band for, you know, a long, long time. But just you're kind of subject to either what's around when you're growing up. And I wasn't allowed to listen to the radio or anything like that. And then once I was, I wow. was 14 or 15. And it was yeah. just punk rock people that I was around. And so, like, yeah. I heard Fugazi and was, like, deeply <laughs> into, you know, just whatever I found there. And 
uh, you know, I had the, the radio in my town, uh, the alternative radio played Nirvana and The Cure and, yeah. you know, uh, U2 and uh, Depeche Mode and stuff. So I I got on the train and absorbed everything I could. But yeah, so th- then me and that guy, yeah. I just said, hey, could you tell me, let's just listen to classic rock all the way home. And <laughs> you just talk to me, you just tell me the history of the, the songs that I'm hearing because he, ev- he knew everything. That's so uh, funny. Wow. Yeah. So I relate to that aspect of the character. Also just the calling the the radio sta- the various radio stations and the the hilarious disbelief in the DJ and the way that he handles that um yeah. and the way that that sort of blocked is just so funny. Oh, he just doesn't even really get at, fully believe it until the <laughs> end that he's like, "Oh, I guess he just doesn't his okay, cool. Never heard it." Yeah. I appreciate it, but wow. Uh, so where did that come from? I mean, I was, I'm just, uh, I was going to say when you first brought it up, I hope that that was, you know, not too far-fetched um, that he hadn't heard the song because it's, you know, kind of, uh, it's a little bit everywhere, but that's it kinda, is. <laughs> that's amazing that you hadn't heard it. Um, so, okay, so it's not far-fetched at all, uh, but... I got to add, in between your first and second album, did you find that you wanted to put like a Van Halen influence or another, hearing that (laughs) stuff, did it change, what did it change uh, between the two albums or were you even tempted to kind of like, let's try out this uh, uh, Van Halen sound this next time around? Um, I didn't particularly like Van Halen when I heard it. (laughs) Yeah. Van Halen's grown on me. Um, Uh Uh-huh. When I was a kid, I didn't like like the flashier, like flashiness in music. I don't love it, um, and part of it is because growing up in the, in certain Christian cultural uh, circles, there was just a kind of like fakeness to things, and I was really searching for things that didn't have that bravado or or whatever. Yeah. And more recently, I I've come around to Van Halen as something that I enjoy listening to. And also for me, I, my, the instrument that I was using to to be a musician with, not, not like a, the musical instrument, but like me as a, I, I was so limited. I, I couldn't sound like anybody. I couldn't copy anybody because <laughs> I just, I just barely had the simple relationship with the tools that I had. I, it was really yeah. expressive. The Before the rhino skin kind of started to, to, to get put on layer by layer. Um, yeah. But so it was a time when it, it, it didn't even occur to me to try to copy people because I just couldn't do, <laughs> I just couldn't effectively do it. Um, they didn't have the pedals Van Halen did. I didn't. Um, <laughs> I, I was missing the piece of gear that was needed. Uh, the, the longer that I've been doing this, the more I just get an expanded tool set all the time but uh, I forget where that started. <laughs> well, I was just—I I asked you if um, how how the, the listening to classic rock changed. Um, oh yeah, or may have influenced. The, the, yeah, Bob. I guess the sweet thought of the idea is um, Dan Licata and I were driving around, and the song came on, and the the, the start of Bob O'Reilly, and the the whole song. It's no matter how many times I've listened to it or, you know, I've heard it in, at the store, in a warehouse, uh, you know, I 
uh, worked for a, a bricklayer uh, for a summer and like they had classic rock and a, a radio on the whole time and you know you hear the same cycle of songs every couple of days and yeah. it's almost like the fact that that song could still come on and have you know kind of catch you and I think if it was released today it would still be you know a very extremely popular he, yes. song like yeah. so it's just um, kind of playing on that and um, the network because it was, you know, we were trying to get the rights to the Who. They were like, is there any other song that'll work? And uh, we tried a, a couple, but nothing is quite the same as the way that that song starts and the, the instruments and the, that, well, you know. The, it's so believable when the, when the twinkling of the synthesizer comes in and and then you're reaching down to the the dishwasher and your hand pauses <laughs> dri- dripping your dripping wet hand pauses like it it really is believable that 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 song would catch you it would catch a person like that just like wait what yeah and just it, it's it really is my manager uh and I were who my manager introduced me to your show he was he was like how did they pay for that like that's just got to be <laughs> he was like somebody really is supportive of that show where whoever's <laughs> ever putting it out because so I you don't have to say how much but was that that was a major issue I assume I I thought it was going to be much worse. Like I thought, uh, because I remember my my only context for how much stuff costs was remember Conan O'Brien in his last week of shows. He had like the Bugatti Viren with uh, Rolling Stones track as a theme song as like a oh, new right. mascot, and it was like this yeah. bit cost a million dollars. So I didn't know, and it was much more reasonable than you'd think for that side yeah. of the song. Yeah, but we licensed the song. They 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 agreed to to license it for us. But then uh, I hope it's all right. I share this. But whoever licensed it must have mis. There was a miscommunication. They thought we were going to use it like four or five times for a song. So we were hmm. to like the first round of edit, and in the the, the episode they charge you from like from when a song starts and stops. Like if you dim the volume and then bring it back up, that's like, you can't chop up a song and count it as like one use. Every time there's like a 10 second start and stop, you get charged oh my for goodness. it. Which is, I mean, great for musicians, but totally. like we ended up using 13 chunks of it in the episode. <laughs> so we had turned yeah. it in and we thought we were very proud of how it came out. And then they, the producer came back and was like, we licensed this for four or five times. We're going to have to seriously redo the, the edit. Oh, and no. it was like, oh no, how did they, how did, I was very scared. But luckily the, the head of the network saw the show, um, loved it so much that they went and, paid for it to be used the additional time so um, that is so great yeah because of him we were able to they did the network yeah they they kind of doubled down on the episode uh literally and it was uh such a relief because we i don't know what would happen yeah well i was glad i'm glad that your edit that you guys made was the one that got to happen is it the Voyager that had that has that gold record on it that is for aliens or whatever? Like that yeah. episode of TV goes in that time capsule for me because it it says something about 
rock and roll, which I love. And it says something about church, which I am familiar with. And I guess I can mm-hmm. say I love, um, in all its complexity. Yeah. And, uh, but it just says something about joy and, um, it's, it's such a powerful episode of, of TV. It's unbelievable. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for doing this, Joe. And yeah. Should we stop recording? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Thanks. Thank Bye. Thanks for listening to this encore episode of the TalkHouse podcast. And thanks to Joe Para and David Bazan for chatting. Please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting services and social channels. The TalkHouse theme is composed and performed, as always, by The Range. See you next time.